Well, hey, thanks for being here uh, this morning. If this is your first time, my name is Mike, and I'm the lead pastor here at uh, MCC. And our goal, in case you're wondering, if this is especially if this is your first time here, uh, I'm just going to tell you right up front what we're all about. We want to help you love God. And if you're new to faith or, or if you're just even checking it out, you're not even sure if this is real yet, we want to help you know who God is and how much he loves you. Uh, and uh, if you're already a Jesus follower, we want to help you love him more and just grow in your faith. Uh, we're also here to help you love people and live on mission, which, by the way, is how we love God back. We love others, and we help them know how much they mean to him, how much he cares about them, and, uh, and we, uh, we help connect them. So listen, and I hope uh, that your time here at MCC helps you with whichever is your next step. And if you're watching us online, thanks for joining us there, and I hope that this series is helpful to you as well. I was going to ask you a favor uh, this week. If you would, uh, one of the things we'd like to find out is where people are watching from. We know that we've had folks watch from other countries, and so we're just starting to gather some of that information. So if you would, uh, send that information to me at mike at explorecc.org. We'd love to hear from you. And again, we hope that this has been helpful to you as we march through, because we've been looking at the miracles from the Gospel of John. And I don't know if you know this or not. It's on your notes. I wanted to make sure you had this. If you were to go through the Gospels and just kind of connect them all, you would find 34 distinct or 34 different miracles that Jesus does uh, in the four Gospels. So if you're doing that, uh, but we're looking at what John records, and John only records seven, which may be why he says in John chapter 20, toward the end of his Gospel, he says Jesus performed many other signs, because he's just talking about seven of the 34, and that's only the 34 that we've got recorded, all right? Uh, but he's done in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And I'll tell you, if someone tells me something like that, you know, it just, it just kind of kills me because it's John drops this teaser in his gospel. There's a whole bunch more that you don't know about, and don't you wish you did? This is one of those things where, you know, if you hadn't told me, I wouldn't even think about it. But now you've kind of dropped this on me. I'd kind of like to know. But even more important than knowing what happened is knowing why these miracles happened. So John, the very next verse says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, which is why it's important for us to recognize we're not just looking at miracles because they're what Jesus did. It's not like Jesus did them and then stopped. It's what God is still doing in the world today, what he's doing in lives around us and through our own lives uh, as well. Listen, I don't know if you ever wonder why, uh, and maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, why do they seem so visible in the Bible, but, but we don't seem to see them today like we saw them like we see in the Bible. And I have a thought. Uh, Christopher uh, Shabris and Daniel Simons conducted an experiment at Harvard University. And so we're going to watch this experiment. So, but it's from Harvard. So some of you are going to have to gear up a little bit. We're going to put on your thinker. This is a Harvard thing. And uh, we're going to watch this video. And here's, so it's a test they did. Again, they did this at Harvard. And so here's the test. You're to watch the players on the screen and count the number of times the players in the white shirts pass the ball, okay? So that's your task, right? You're going to watch how many times the players in the white shirt pass, pass the ball. Okay, so check this out.
Okay. All right. So did you count? How many, did, how many of you counted 16 passes? All right. If you counted 16, man, you were right on top of it. Here's the question. Did you notice the gorilla? Okay. So I'm curious. If you've never seen this experiment before or even heard of it before, so uh, if you've never seen or heard of it, about half of the people who've never seen or heard of it, miss the gorilla. How many of you had never seen or heard of this before? Just your hand. Can I see your hands? How many of you saw the gorilla? Okay. All right. So it's, you know, about half. Now, if you knew about the gorilla, right, you probably saw it, right? Everyone knew what was coming, correct? How many have seen this before? How many have seen or heard of it or something? How many of you saw the gorilla? Okay. But did you notice the curtain changed from red to gold? And did you notice we lost one of the players in the black shirts? Okay, I was just curious because, listen, here's the, here's the thing. Let's check it out again. For those of you who miss it, watch us. We're going to rewind this, and we'll show it one more time so you can kind of see what hap- where it happens in the thing and how it happens. All right. So if you didn't see it, this is going to surprise you. did me the first time. I didn't see it the first time. As a matter of fact, I didn't even believe it happened. So, yeah, see? Uh, <laughs> are you seeing the curtain change now? Okay, yeah, yeah. You noticing we're done? You know, I got to the end of the video and I thought, that's really weird. They used three players in white shirts and only two in black shirts. I can't believe they did that. <laughs> listen, here, listen, when they did this, they wrote a book after the experiment called The Invisible Gorilla. The idea of the experiment is to see if viewers would notice something they're not looking for. Okay, that's the whole idea. Even something as obvious as the gorilla on the screen. Amazingly, again, half of the test group. So it had never been done before. No one had heard. No one had seen. Nothing like it's first time. Half the test group did not see the gorilla. But the test became so well known and so widely viewed, they had to alter it uh, to prove their point. How, listen, how is it possible that we don't see what's right in front? It's right in front of us and we don't, still don't see it. The short answer, and this uh, could possibly be something about your next step in your faith, uh, your walk with Jesus, is called inattentional blindness. Inattentional blindness is the failure to notice something that is right in your field of vision because you're focused on something else. So it's happening in front of you, but you're looking here, and you don't see what's happening right here in front of you. Or, uh, as in the case of the white shirts, passing basketballs. But inattentional blindness can be as intentional as turning a blind eye to something you don't want to see. You know it's there, you just don't want to see it. Or as unintentional as fading awareness of these things that are always going on in life. So you just kind of take them for granted over time and you no longer see them. Either way, either way, it can keep us from seeing what God is doing right in front of us because we're not paying attention. So let me give you something else. On your notes, you'll see this, that children ask 125 probing questions per day. Now, if you are a parent of a young child or a teacher in a classroom with elementary kids, you may already know this information and may be surprised that it's so small. <laughs> only 125, right? Right, right. Okay. Adults, on the other hand, ask only six probing questions per day which means that somewhere between childhood and adulthood, we lose 119 questions. And I tell you that because at some point, our st- when we stop asking questions, we start making assumptions about things, and that's when inattentional blindness can occur. 
Miracles happen around us, but we assume things instead of asking questions, and so we don't see what's happening. Mark Batterson in his, uh, in his book wrote this, half of faith is learning what we don't know. The other half is unlearning what we do know. So when it comes to miracles, I mean, you, just, it, you never know how or when or where God is going to show up, but you can be sure of this. He's going to probably ask you to do something you've never done before. Or maybe you've never even seen before. And if you have the courage to do something you've never done before, you may actually have the opportunity to see something you've never seen before. So if you have your Bible with you, John 6 is where we're going to be today. Uh, or on the Version app on your phone, you can find the miracle we're looking at there along with some other notes. If, you're, uh, if you've got your Bible open here, some notes to follow along with as well. And my guess is what we're going to talk about today uh, almost, if not everyone in the room, is aware of this story because of the miracles in the Gospels, uh, only two make it in all four Gospels. One is the resurrection, and the other is the one we're looking at today. It's the feeding of the 5,000 is what we've called it, at least what it was called when I was growing up. So let's take a look at this, John chapter 6. We're going to take apart some verses here for a moment. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. So just so you know, the Sea of Galilee was known by three different names. The Sea of Tiberias is one of the other names. But there are times when Jesus wanted to get away from the crowds of people. And so when Matthew records this gospel, he says that John the ba he tells us that John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, has just been beheaded. And so this is sitting on Jesus' heart uh, as, we, as we look at this story. In Mark and Luke, when they tell us this story, we find out that Jesus has also just sent the 12 out in pairs to do miracles and to preach, and they've just come back, and they're very excited, and they're talking to Jesus about what was going on, and there were so many people around them, and everyone was so excited that they couldn't even stop and find a place to eat or to rest. And so Jesus crosses to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee just to kind of get away. But in verse 2, what we find is a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. So, uh, so it's a distance of about four miles that Jesus sets sail, uh, and the people had been watching with amazement all the miracles he's been doing. As a matter of fact, if your Bible is open, look back at John chapter 5. You'll see the miracle that we talked about last week, Jesus healing a man who had been an invalid for 38 years, and the people saw this and many other miracles he'd been doing. As a matter of fact, the Greek word literally means they kept following because they continually saw what he habitually did. So they just kept seeing this thing that Jesus kept doing, and when they saw the direction that the boat was heading, they took off walking around the top of the lake. And when Jesus looked, uh, landed, he went up into the hills, and he was sitting there with his disciples, and then the crowd starts to appear. It was nine miles around the lake, and so they hustled around, and I wonder, I wonder if you'd been sitting there with Jesus, what it would have looked like, because verse 10 tells us that there were about how many? 5,000 men. You look up, here comes 5,000 men. So here, I'm going to tell you this. It's on your notes. Miracles remind me of something that is about to come into focus. Miracles remind me that with Jesus, nothing is impossible. Now, I say that it's about to come into focus because you're on the mountainside with Jesus, and coming towards you, you see how many men? 
5,000 men. Now, in that day, women and children would not have been included in the count. That's why it says 5,000 men, right? Uh, and so some scholars speculate that this crowd coming toward Jesus and his 12 followers that they've been trying to get away from, that they could have been anywhere in size from 10,000 to even 20,000. I mean, there could have been that many people. Have you ever been to the University of Dayton to watch a football game? They play in Welcome Stadium. Seriously, who names their stadium welcome? I mean, don't you want to be called Killer Bowl Stadium or We're Gonna Kick Your Behind Stadium or whatever. But uh, at any rate, Welcome Stadium holds around 11,000 people. So the place is packed out plus maybe 4,000, maybe 9,000 more people, and they're all coming to you. And I don't know if you can see them. They're coming around the corner. They're coming up you know, over the top of cresting a hill, maybe two or three initially, and then a handful, and then here comes, you see hundreds, and then all of a sudden you see thousands of people headed your way. And verse 5 says that when Jesus, and probably the 12 are all looking at this happening, he turns toward one of his followers and taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, Phil, we got a situation here. Where are we going to get bread for all of these people? And we find out that Philip uh, is a native of a nearby town, Bethsaida, and so he's actually very naturally one of the people that he would have asked this question to. But let's say Jesus asked you that question. You see thousands of people coming towards you, minimum of 5,000, but more likely 10 to 15 to 20,000 people. And Jesus asks you the question, hey, where can we get bread for all these people? What would be your first thought? My first thought would be, I don't know who caters around here. You know, I don't know. Philip was even more practical. In verse 7, he says, are you serious? If we took all of the money we made in six months, it wouldn't even be enough to buy bread so that everybody could have, you know, even a bite of, of bread. But it's interesting because in verse 6, Jesus isn't looking for insight. He asks him just to, because he's going to what? Test him. He already knew what he was about to do, but he just wanted to check with, with Philip and see if he knew. And as I was thinking through these verses, there were two thoughts that ran through, their mind, through my mind. I jotted them down. They're not on your notes. I don't know if you want to jot them down or not. But the first one is because God is involved in our lives every day. Listen, he's so keenly aware of what's going on in our lives. He walks with us. He knows the answer before we even know there's a question, right? I just want to make sure you get that because he's with you all the time. He already... And because he's with you all the time, it's also fair to say that he knows the solution before we even are aware there's a problem. Do you think Jesus knew that this was about to happen? Of course he did. He's the son of God. And so he knows this is going to happen. He already knows the solution to what's happening. And, and let me say, what appears impossible to us doesn't appear that way to God at all. And I don't, I don't say that. Listen, I hope you, that's fair to say. But I don't say that to minimize your problems. I, minim I say that to maximize who God is in your eyes. Because in Luke chapter 1, when an angel told Mary she was going to have a baby, he would be the son of God, Mary's response is this. How can that be? I'm not even married. You know what she's saying here, right? And that's because some of our translations say, I'm still a virgin, right? I'm still married. And the angel said, well, your relative Elizabeth is also going to have a son, even though she's old. And she was old. And no one thought she could ever have a baby, but in three months, she will have a son because, and this is what the angel said, so let's read this together, because nothing is impossible for God, right? How did that start? How did this whole thing start? It started with a question, right? Mary's told this thing by the angel, and she says, how will this be? 
But if as adults we only ask six probing questions a day, I wonder if what would have happened was instead of us even considering the possibility that God could cause something like this to happen, instead of a question like that, we would go, yeah, no, I don't think that's going to happen. That's not really, you know, possible. Because we're not going to ask that question. But look, I want you to notice, listen, I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't know what seems impossible to you in your life. I have friends who are, da- are addicts. And for some of them right now, it just seems impossible to get past that. Maybe for you, it's the space left by someone that you love that you've lost. And there's just like this gaping hole in your heart. Or maybe it's the space that is there because a child that you wanted has never been born. Or maybe, maybe it's something going on at work. Or maybe, maybe it's something that's happening at home. And you need to know that Jesus is willing to address the tough challenges in your life with you. And he's willing to handle the problems that you are facing that seem beyond human ability to handle. The first miracle we looked at was water to wine, and it reminded us that nothing is too small for God. This miracle reminds us of just the opposite. It shows us that nothing is too big for God. And so I just want to make sure we get that. With Jesus, nothing is impossible. So here's the next uh, lesson for us. Miracles reminding me that with Jesus, nothing is insignificant. When we look around at issues and problems and things going on in our life, we may feel like there's nothing we have to contribute. But look at verses 8 and 9. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. And he said, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But seriously, how far will that go among so many? I just want you to notice the words small barley loaves, uh, because those words may not mean much to you and I, but John's readers would have recognized they were descriptive of the bread and about the boy. Uh, barley bread was an inferior bread in that day. It was the least kind of bread. It was actually the bread of poor people. And so that tells you something about this boy. And those words, small fish, William Barclay in his commentary writes that they would be no bigger than sardines. So if you're thinking McFish sandwich, get that out of your mind and drop in. Just, it really meant just enough meat to make this really dry bread edible. That's all that he's talking about, just enough uh, to, to ease the dry bread. And it's possible that Andrew had gone out uh, on a reconnaissance mission into the crowd to just sort of see what kind of food they had available to them. Uh, and he looks and he goes, but how far will this go among so many? And I'm wondering about this boy. I mean, I don't know how he did in math class, but my guess is he knows that 2 plus 5 equals 7, not 2 plus 5 equals you know, 5,000 to 20,000. He knew his two fish weren't going to be enough to make a dent, let alone feed thousands of people. It was a drop in the bucket. But he didn't let uh, what he didn't have keep him from giving what he did have. Let me say that again. He didn't allow what he didn't have to keep him from giving what he did have. And that's the precursor to a miracle, by the way. Like so many unsung heroes in the Bible, this little boy walks off the stage of Scripture and he's never heard from again. But his 15 minutes of fame have now stretched into 2,000 years. Because even though what he had seemed so insignificant uh, compared to what they were trying, to the question they were trying to answer, uh, it seemed insignificant to him, seemed insignificant to Andrew. However, interestingly, it didn't seem insignificant to Jesus at all. Let me say it this way. What he was being asked to do seemed impossible. Five loaves, two fish, four thousands. 
It didn't add up. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt like God was asking you to do something that just didn't add up? You know that God wants you to take that job that pays less, but you won't be able to pay off your school loans. That doesn't even make sense. You know God wants you to go on that mission trip, but, but you don't really have that time coming to you. It doesn't, doesn't make any sense. You know God wants you to adopt a child or, or go to grad school or give, or give to a kingdom cause. It just doesn't fit in your budget right now. You know, when you read scripture and you find out that God calls those you know, who are following him to trust him with a tithe of their income, which is a ton, a tenth of your income, it's a ton. The numbers don't add up with the bills you have coming in. What do you do when God calls you to do something that doesn't add up? And I will tell you this, the will of God rarely adds up. Because by definition, a God-ordained dream will always be beyond your resources and beyond your ability to do. In other words, you can't afford it, and you can't accomplish it. But this boy gives what he has, not what he doesn't, but he gives what he has that seems so small for the need in front of them. And in verse 10, very interesting, Jesus has everybody take a seat as if they're actually going to eat a meal. And then he blesses this imaginary meal, but as it stands... He has to split two fish 20,000 ways. Uh, listen, I don't know if you've ever been to a restaurant and had to wait longer than you expected. You ever done that? You ever, it'll be five minutes. Yeah, it's been 25 minutes. You ever been that way? Or you ever been to a restaurant and you ordered something and just a moment after they've gone, the, the server comes back and says, I'm really sorry. We're all out of that. Have you ever had that happen to you? Man, it kind of gets aggravating, doesn't it? Can you imagine the longer you wait, the hungrier and grumpier you get? It can get very ugly fast. And I'm tell I tell you that because this crowd could very easily have turned into a mob if something didn't happen fast. So in verse 11, Jesus thanks his followers, or thanks his father, excuse me, for something he doesn't have. And in verse 13, it says, after everyone had eaten until they were full, they gathered up 12 baskets that were left over. Do you know why they did that? Because in verse 12, Jesus says, gather the pieces that are left over because we don't want anything wasted. We didn't have enough to begin with. I just don't want any of it to be wasted uh, when we're all done. So I say all that. Listen, we point this out. Your next step in your faith, here's the first one. This week, be insignificant. Can I encourage you with that? This week, this week in particular, this week focus on being insignificant. Outside of Jesus, who's the hero of this story? So three people picked up on that. <laughs> Did everybody hear what they said? Yeah, outside of Jesus, it's the little boy, right? He's the, the hero of this. And remember, I told you that this is the only miracle outside of the resurrection that's mentioned in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't even mention a little boy. And John, what's this kid's name? We have no idea, right? Here's this guy who's one of the heroes of the story. His mom has just catered a meal for 20,000 people. And don't, they don't even get a mention. I say that just to say, be a background person. Don't worry about getting credit this week. Don't worry about getting your name up, on, you know, up in lights. Do whatever is needed. But I will tell you this, if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to be in the background, if you're willing to be insignificant, if you're willing to do whatever is in front of you with whatever you have in your hands, you could end up losing your lunch this week. It may cost you your lunch. It may cost you all that you have. But I want to encourage you to be insignificant. Here's the second. 
Trust Jesus enough to give him what I have. I'm not asking you to give him what you don't have. Jesus does not ask you to give what you don't have. He wants what you have. What do you think that boy was thinking when he handed over his lunch? Because I don't think he was thinking, oh man, look at this, I get to watch Jesus feed thousands of people with my lunch. I don't think that's what he was thinking. I think what he was thinking was, Sue, guess I'm not eating lunch today. That's what I'm guessing. I don't know that's what he was thinking, but I say that because that's what I would have been thinking if I had been there that day. Uh, I, I don't have that much. If I trust Jesus with what I've got, with what little I've got, if I trust Jesus with what little I've got, then I won't have you fill in the blank. Right? If I trust him with this, so I just don't have that much. If I trust him with this, I won't have, if this boy didn't share his five loaves and two fish, I'm not sure this miracle of multiplication would have ever happened. And please don't hear, I'm not doubting Jesus' ability to do something out of nothing. I'm not doubting his ability to do that. I'm just saying that God doesn't do the supernatural if we don't pull our weight by doing the natural. If we don't offer it back to God, he's not going to take it and do something really cool with it. It's when we trust him that he takes what we give him and then he does something that's way bigger than we could have ever uh, imagined. I like this quote, Mark Batterson, one more time on the bottom of your handout. Miracles don't just happen when we believe God for big things. Miracles happen when we obey God in the little things. When we do the little things like they're big things, God will do big things like they're little things. And he will do that in your life. He will do that through your life. If you're paying attention, right, we have to be looking for God at work around us. And then we have to be willing to do what doesn't even make sense to us at the time. But then we have this great cool story to talk about. You know, I share all of that, and we're about to sing this song as we prepare for communion. And the words to this song are, I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray, find in me thine all in all. And we get that line, right? We get this idea that we are a child of weakness because we know what it's like to feel weak in the face of what is sitting right in front of us. And Jesus said, watch, you watch, you pray and you watch and you will be surprised at what you find out happens next. And I can't help but think that this this line applies so much, right? Because we know when it comes to what we've done, when it comes to what you and I have done, we know, we know there are things we've done this past week in the last couple days on our way to church this morning. There are things we know we've done that are wrong. And when we start adding them up, it's too much. It's, it's too much. We can't unsay, we can't undo, we can't unthink. The damage we've done in our own lives, the damage we may have caused in other people's lives, we can't undo it. We can't make it right, which is why we sing the next line. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left this crimson stain. He will take it and make it as white as snow. Because when we give him, 
when we go back to him, he does this miracle in our lives every time we come back to him. And he removes the guilt of the things that we have done because we are children of weakness. And we know that. But he takes that. And he does something brand new through it. Let's go to him in prayer. God, thank you for just reminding us of, of what is possible with you. We look at these miracles in the Bible and we think you, you've done such grand things on such a large scale. You've changed people's lives. You've, you've taken these small things and made them much bigger than they could have been and just you've helped people with that. And yet, God, if we'll listen, there are stories around us. People are sharing things. If we watch, we can see when you take somebody's leftover furniture. When someone gives furniture that is still in great shape, and, but they don't need anymore, and they don't know what to do with it, but someone else already has a need that they're unaware of. And, God, you're working behind the scenes to bring all of that together. We know that there are people who need an encouraging word and for some reason they come to our minds and you do something new in their life just because we said something. We don't even know what we're doing at the time. We're just being encouraging. God, there is so much you can do through us if we will just allow ourselves not to worry about who gets the credit. If we'll not worry about being the big person in the story. If we'll not worry about anything other than allowing you to work through us into the lives of the people around us. And so we sit back in this moment now where we remember when we were helpless and we remember when we had this stack of debt because of the sins that we had committed, the decisions that we had made. And it was more than we could pay. And you stepped in. And sometimes it was through the voice of a friend who helped us come to know who you are voice of a parent or a teacher and you stepped into our lives because we invited you in and you have changed everything for us because all of us in the room have struggled with sin we all know the weight of that so God this morning we stop and remember what you have already done in our lives and we say thank you and for what we have done this week last couple days on the way to church this morning. God, we give that back to you now and pray that, pray that you would cleanse us of our sins because we love you and we want people to see you in our lives. And so we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, as we take the emblems that remind us of his body and his blood and are drawn back to what he did.